thank you for inviting me to talk here today. I'll try to keep my intervention as brief as possible, as, <laughs> as you're one of the ones who has to <laughs> So anyway, what, what I'm going to, what I try to provide in my paper <coughs> is sort of a more comprehensive, what do you want to say, quantitative analysis of the migration control and try to use that to try as a contribution to uh, this debate we've had here today about securitization, security theory, what is really its explanatory potential, how useful are some ideas we can draw from security studies for our understanding of, of contemporary Euro European migration control practices. So the case I'm looking at is, is visas or specifically the European Union's short state visa policy. As many of you here, of course, are aware, for the majority of the world's population, it's necessary to acquire a travel visa to go to Europe. And that's, in a way, effectively moves the borders of Europe to consulates abroad as the first uh, location where you really need to prove that you're able to comply with EU's border entry control criteria. So what I try to do is I try to provide sort of a more comprehensive, quantitative investigation of how liberal or how restrictive do the member states uh, apply the common visa issuing rules in different third countries abroad and try to use this investigation to show that, that there is indeed a considerable variation and I think that we can see that security uh, dynamics is the main driver of uh, European external border policy but we can also see clear evidence that it is mitigated by trading interest business lobbying in several uh, important cases. And I'm going to just talk a little bit about that and some ideas about how can we combine, as we've also talked about before with, with Vicky's presentation, combine security ideas with more liberal constraints, interest group ideas more in the mainstream of migration studies. Um, so I'm not going to, to talk so much about this. Uh, this is something we've been through very much uh, today, about how uh, it's, it's a sort of a commonplace, at least in some uh, squares of literature, this idea that we see migration fears as a key driver of, of uh, migration control policies leading to these restrictive outcomes in terms of travel limitation, harsh documentary requirements, intrusive uh, interviewing techniques at consulates, all kinds of practices you might not expect to see if the, sort of the normal rules of politics were upheld and this wasn't and migration hadn't been elevated to this considerable uh, threat to, to European states and nations. This, uh, as we've also been through in the main analytical perspective, but put into question by Boswell, by Neil, in a way, in, in your studies of Frontex, as well as, as the, how much uh, purchase is there really in this idea, or how can we reframe it to gain more, more utility from it. Uh, what I want to add to, to, to that is some more methodological observation, also picking up on Neil, is that I think that the literature that has made this argument has primarily looked at sort of some single country case studies, small end studies, or more, even just more explorative with, without any sort of developed research design or explicit mythology in use. And, uh, and a key uh, source of the, the analysis has also simply been policy documents drafted uh, at European Union level at different statements within these policy documents and visa list, visa criteria has then simply been used as a support of arguments that we've seen as securitization. Uh, and within the case of, uh, with using the case of visas, I think this is, uh, this has also been sort of the main approach where what, what mainly has, has been this, the topic of, uh, of debate about the European short visa policy has been the visa list, basically picturing the countries, uh, the third country nationals here, here which 
who needs a visa to, to travel to Europe, and people have looked at this map and looked at the patterns of it, and basically try to use that to show some sort of uh, restrictive tendency or some sort of discrimination, at least in the sense that we have this sort of Western space of free movement, of free mobility, and a more excluded global south in a way where it's much more difficult to, to travel to Europe. And, but, but what I think at least is missing in this map, or has been a little bit missing in, in the debate, has, has been an investigation of how is this visa policy actually implemented in, in practice? Is it uniformly restrictive towards these different third countries, as ex the existing research suggests? Do we indeed see a considerable variation within the common visa regime? And what might this variation suggest for how we should understand European external border policy? So that's, that's a, a lot of what I try to do in the paper, is basically to look at, at the at variation in EU's uh, short-stay visa issuing practice. So what this map basically shows is, for instance, that for, for applicants from Russia, you can see that the, the visa refusal rates, that is sort of the proportion of, of visas that are not issued compared to the proportion of applications, is in fact very low. Uh, only about sort of perhaps a zero to five percentage points of visa applications from Russia are refused, and you see the same from the sort of southern African countries, uh, some Middle Eastern countries, and over as well in, in sort of Austria, but in the region of Australia, and there are of course some hotspots as well, Algeria, Afghanistan, and Congo, uh, <clears throat> and how I try to use the, this visa data in the paper is sort of as an indication of how restrictive is the visa policy in practice. For instance, in Russia, in many ways, the main barrier for getting a visa is, is the be being able to finance or, or pay for the application, whereas the documentary requirements and the close scrutiny of the application is not necessarily that, that considerable. And in many cases, travel or tour operators can simply uh, request the visa from the consulate without you needing to show up. And I think that sort of is reflected in this sort of very low refusal rate, whereas in Algeria and Congo, uh, the scrutiny of the application, the documentary requirements, the difficulties of getting a visa is much larger, reflected in this uh, higher refusal rates. So this, and what I basically then try to do in the paper is say, what, what, are, what are the basic theories, what, what basic models can explain this variation in, in the restrictiveness of, of uh, contemporary European migration control? Um, and use that as sort of a as a way of, of moving the debate a little bit, bit, bit forward through a more sort of empirical study in a way. And I've talked a little bit about the argument as well. I try to pursue that we can see migration fear as a main driver, but its effect mitigated by trading interest. And what I'd, I'd, how I try to develop that argument is, uh, is through simply testing some different hypotheses and collecting some data on the more sort of the independent variables in a more large-scale quantitative test. So, of course, there are different ways of thinking about what would be the implications of having a security-driven uh, migration control. And here I pursue two different ideas. The first is that we should perhaps see a tendency that if there is a large migrant community in a member state, that it might be inclined to be more restrictive in its uh, short-stay visa issuing practice towards these third-country nationals, driven by a fear of overstaying the way that an existing migrant community could facilitate illegal stay uh, within a European member state. So if that is a key concern of consular and ministerial officials, we should see this, this dynamic where any pre-existing migrant community translates into a more restrictive visa issuing practice, driven by this fear of, of facilitated overstaying, being able to simply, in a way, disappear in a little bit, 
in a, in a slight way into an, an, a micro community which could provide the network with the resources that, that can provide you with some of the abilities for, for conducting a, a regular state. And the other one you might say is, looks at more specifically some of, some of the arguments that, that, that what has been occurring post 9-11 is mainly sort of a, a targeted Muslim majority oriented uh, discourse. So that is sort of what, what, this, what the security ideas really capture. That we have seen this this targeting of Muslim majority groups across uh, Western European countries, and pursuing that idea, we should see, I would argue, uh, when we control for other factors, that Muslim majority uh, nationals of Muslim majority countries have a harder time traveling to Europe because of the of this uh, migration fear. And then this uh, this uh, the, the second sort of batches of uh, hypothesis goes more to sort of interest group theory, a classical approach in migration studies, basically looking at how migration policy is in many ways, especially when we look at its practical implication, driven by well-organized pro-migration constituencies, especially business groups. And that is, of course, something you, you could easily well expect within short stay visas, how major business companies would be very interested in having a liberal visa regime to facilitate trade, to conduct uh, contracts, to get them in house, and also how, of course, tourism as well, especially in many member states, is such a major industry and would also say, why, why should we not pursue a liberal policy in the interest of tourism? And though we might have some implications for illegal migration, this is really, this is really such a key concern to a well-organized uh, constituency or well-organized interest group that it, of course, should be able to lobby ministerial level different levels to, to acquire low refusal rates. And at least where I come from in, in Denmark, this is something that is very explicitly uh, mentioned in documents guiding visa issuing practices, how they are negotiated with consultation of industry, tourism, domestic tourism actors, major business actors, high-level working groups, discussing the visa issuing criteria, how the, the Ministry of Immigration in practice goes about developing the guidelines for the consulates or the development, the guidelines for their assessment of, uh, of cases that get deferred to them. Um, so these are the two different ideas here. On, on the one hand, we should see that cases where there are large trading interests at stake, translating into low refusal rates, cases where there are a lot of tourism at stake, translating into low refusal rates or generous visa issuing practices. Um, so what I, what I look at is sort of a... a uh, the, the official EU visa issuing data and there are a lot of uh, issues about that and a lot of uh, discussion about how, uh, what is the quality of that data and I spent a lot of time trying to, to pass through it and, and make it as, as, as good as possible as an indicator or as a proxy of how restrictive the, the, practice, the policy is, not necessarily as being sort of the, the measure but more as an indicator of how restrictive the member states practice is in different countries. And I, look, I go to basically sort of this uh, a large regression analysis, looking at bilateral country pairs. So for instance, France's practice in Algeria, Belgium's practice in Morocco, and try to, to see what, what kind of uh, variables are best able to explain this variation. And to, to cut a, a, a long story short, we can see that both, both of these variables, or both of these models, have a purchase on the data. We both see the migration fear as a driver. We both see that the, that the, that the security model has a purchase. Controlling for, for differences in GDP and controlling for these other variables 
there is a, a, a clear tendency in the data that Muslim Africans and Muslim majority countries are uh, have a higher refusal rate. We see this this linkage between the size of domestic migrant communities and how restrictive the member states are. So basically, they're very restrictive when there is uh, a large uh, domestic migrant community, or that is some of the cases where they're most restrictive. But uh, having these two models, both having some explanatory purchase, raises the, the debate that Vicky also uh, launched into, how can we combine the two? What are sort of the ways in which we can see the two uh, working together? And um, what, what I suggest, at least from looking in, in some of the patterns in the data, is that we can then we can sort of map the cross-pressure between some of these uh, different variables and see how they lead to different outcomes. So on the one hand, if in, with the cases in the data where we see this combination of a large trading interest, a large domestic migrant community, but in this case, where it's a non-Muslim majority state, and so there are perhaps a little electoral concerns, we see, uh, here used the examples of Belgium, in the case of Russia and India, where uh, there is a, a quite generous visa issue in practice, it is fairly easy to get a visa. Mm. And then when we sort of shift our attention to the same group of countries with the large trading interest, the large migrant community, but a Muslim majority profile, we see what, what translates into some more of a medium or average refusal rates here, the case of Turkey or Algeria, where there is this cross-pressure of interests. And then the, the final case here, um, where interest, interestingly enough, this discussion of Muslim majority drops out, and where you basically see that there is a large migrant community, there is this fear of overstaying, translating into very high refusal rates, approximately, uh, for instance, Morocco, half of all applications are denied, an indication of a very, very strict visa practice, a very strict requirements, Congo, Cameroon as well. Again, there is only this fear of overstaying. There is no countervailing lobbying by business interests. And here, again, it doesn't really matter, this, this whole discussion of the religious uh, dimension in a way. Don't, this is really the, the case where the, the, the councillor ministerial uh, fear of overstaying translate very directly into very restrictive practices. And let me just skip to that one. And th this is, uh, I'm not going to delve into these details about the more sort of uh, how we could improve the, the sort of the more analytical, the modeling behind it. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about this, well, I have some minutes to go, about, the, <laughs> about this, uh, this question of variation, because of course this is only one pattern in the data and, and there are other patterns and dynamics. As we also look back to the map, there is a lot going on. And I, I just think it's it worth raising a debate about what is our explanatory goal. At least I've, what I've tried to do is to try to identify a key pattern or a key dynamic. And, and this is not to say I don't think that our goal should necessarily be to develop sort of an all-encompassing model which is able to account for all outcomes, but try to 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 identify some of the major patterns and, and, and major structures in in how, what guides migration control. So. Again, concluding, we see how uh, refusal rates vary considerably. We need to move beyond looking solely at policy documents and also delving into practice, as Neil has also emphasized. And we also, at least from, from what I tried to show in the paper, need to pay continued attention to, to security-driven uh, ideas as a key driver of, of border control practices, but also pay attention to how its effect is mitigated. And I think this raises some final wider perspective, um, also touching on some of the questions of the consequences of, uh, of securitization. Um, 
And I think this idea that, that there is some sort of interplay with the size of migrant communities increases and the travel barriers increasing as well, that I think this raises some discussion and some debate about can we really achieve both immigration, can we both go at, promote, for instance, family unification and family migration or even labor migration policies and at the same time perhaps also have a goal of creating short-term mobilities, creating easy access for people-to-people -people contact and perhaps be wary of, uh, of being aware of the, of the potential trade-off between the two. And I think exploring this theme further, the U.S. provides an interesting contrast, uh, but I don't know if you can feed into that debate. For instance, in the U.S. visa uh, policy, it is presumed by default that you want to migrate. So you have to actively show to the consular official that you are not a, a potential migrant. And I think that is an interesting uh, showcase of this idea that the U.S. being the major migration country as such, in a way has the most restrictive starting point for the visa policy that you are a potential migrant and you need to prove otherwise. I think that this sort of plays a little bit on the idea or sort of the consequences of how our current migration control system is, is construed together that we are playing into a potential trade-off between on the one hand permanent migration and on the other hand short-term mobility. And finally, I think there is of course also some this this religion or religious question raises some, raises some discussions about selecting by religion. This, I think Christian Jopke has written a sort of a lengthy book on selecting by origin, so this is a little bit plain on, on his words. What is the, the normatively justifiable criteria you can pursue in your border control policies? What kind of uh, criteria are indeed legitimate? And I think thinking about these more normatively liberal constraint might also be a way of, for us of identifying what are the main major fault lines where would we see key securitizing dynamics, where, where do we see some criteria used that we might find particularly problematic and use that as, an, as a way of finding potentially interesting cases and exploring in more microanalysis what is at play, how are these uh, decisions justified and, and narrativized. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you.